Hello and welcome to the Euractive Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractive's Agri-Food News Team. So we're here today with Euractive's very own Clara. Hello Clara, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi, thanks for being with us today. So we've invited you on to have a little chat about this report that was um, published this week on something called the polluter pays principle. Maybe you could give a little uh, a little summary. What is this? What does this principle mean? What is this about? The polluter pays principle is well established in the EU and aims to hold responsible polluters for the pollution they cause. So, in other words, the polluter and not the taxpayer is expected to bear the costs created by pollution. Right. So it's the ones that are putting the pollution out into the environment that then has to pay, which kind of makes sense, I suppose, because it's trying to trying to stem the source of of pollution. And this is something that's it's established. It's in environmental policy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so what was the report this week from the auditors um, about this? What were, what were the kind of main conclusions from this report? Well, the main conclusion in the latest report of the EU Court of Auditors um, reveals that actually European taxpayers often foot a hefty, as they say, a hefty bill, um, because according to the ECA, the PPP, sorry, does not cover all cases and its application can be different from one sector to another or from one country to another. So basically, in, in different places in the EU, it's being applied not evenly and not fairly, presumably. Not fairly. And what I thought was interesting about this report was that it was talking about the need to apply the polluter pays principle um, to the agricultural sector, to, to water, which is kind of like a merge of our two our two hubs. We're talking about environment and agriculture and kind of becoming one. Just for the water pollution or? Yeah. So it was, they were talking about it specifically in water pollution. Mm. But the other day as well, there was another, I mean, I think actually maybe our listeners, our loyal listeners will remember we had um, actually one of the auditors on Deal, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. And they were talking about the polluter pays principle in terms of greenhouse gas emissions mm. from agriculture as well. So actually, there's been multiple kind of conversations about applying it to the agricultural sector um, in different in different ways, for different angles. But this report specifically was focusing on water pollution, um, saying that it was the sector that kind of exerted the most pressure on water resources and that it, they, they should be the ones to pay. Yeah, I mean, I assume there's also, you know, other um, issues like, of course, waste management and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff that even, you know, incidentally touch on uh, agriculture too. But yeah, it seems that uh, water resources and and pollution of water um, resources is, is probably uh, the most pressing, together with the greenhouse emission, of course. But I mean, when it, it's maybe it's a bit uh, more difficult to assess uh, this principle when it comes to greenhouse emission. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just uh, assuming. It's difficult for water as well because it's really, really diffuse and it's, it doesn't, um, yeah, it's a really diffuse kind of issue. And so you, it's very difficult to say who's done what where. Um, and they were, they did highlight that in the report that it was incredibly difficult to apply this to the agricultural sector. You know what this water pollution uh, reminds me of, of our oh, no. yeah, of our great time with uh, Mark Ruffalo. Oh, because yeah. I mean the the movie. Okay, Clara, we have a story for you. <laughs> a bit of of context, you know. 
I think I need a bit of content. <laughs> yeah. Last year was before the pandemic. Okay. Um, was one of the, of our last, um, uh, you know, uh, trip to the European Parliament. So the, they invited, I don't remember who, probably an NGO, could be the EEB. Uh, they invited the actor, Mark Ruffalo. Um, to present this Dark Waters, which is a, actually a good, a very good movie, um, and it was about water pollution, if I remember. It was, yes. I yeah. actually watched the movie. It was a good movie. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not paid to advertise it, but it's a good, <laughs> it's a good movie. So okay, and and basically, it was we we started the podcast. It was like we we were at the fourth or fifth episodes of the podcast. And I had the this brilliant idea <laughs> of having Mark Ruffalo on the record say something agriculture, you know, like whatever. <laughs> so, so we went there just to ask a question on agriculture to Mark Ruffalo in order to... Not a question, two questions. Two questions. Do you remember? To have him on the podcast, you know, and, uh, and it was like uh, an, an incredible, an incredible attempt, uh, which failed. Uh, oh. ultimately and uh, and I was so close because they gave me the floor uh, in a committee meeting you know like a, a committee room but actually they gave the floor to some kind of president of this uh, this organization and in the end um, uh, the time uh, was over and um, that would have been great yeah. I know can you imagine your heart yeah. was broken wasn't it and there, there were there were <laughs> Other attempts, uh, I'm not particularly proud of. <laughs> I wonder what Mark Ruffalo would make of the polluter pays principle. Do you think he would be for it? Mark, if if you listen to us, Mark? I, 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 I'm sure you're listening. <laughs> Tell us uh, what's your take on uh, on the polluter pays principle. <laughs> so, what were you saying? It was interesting about water pollution. Yeah, so I was saying that usually uh, when you speak of pollution or tackle pollution uh, in the EU or basically anywhere else in the world, uh, you don't really think of what pollution first. Uh, it's usually about the industrial sector, transport or waste management as well. So I think it's very good uh, that on Monday in the report, the uh, ECA uh, has decided to focus more on water pollution and agriculture. Yeah, it is interesting because you're right, it's not the one that you immediately think of, but obviously agriculture has such a big impact on on water, on the water tables and on, you know, nitrate pollution and fertilizers um and water use. So um it has a huge effect. And it's it's something that maybe slips under the radar sometimes. And when you think of it, water is really, I mean, water policies and how to to manage uh, water resources that we have uh, to keep it clean and uh, without any kind of pollution is really important, not only for agriculture, but also for health, safety, um, all of this. So I think, yeah, it's really important that they, they've decided to focus more uh, on water and agriculture, which is a big sector. Um, in France, for example, uh, we... Uh, we have a very strong agriculture industry. So uh, I think it's, yeah, it's a good opportunity. Mm. And actually, because they, they cited a study, um, the auditors, um, talking about the price of water, uh, the price of this water pollution, they were saying it can cost up to 494 euros per household per year in that France. That we paid. We <laughs> French people pay. I was going to say, not us, poor Clara, it's Clara's paying. <laughs> 
Sorry, Clara. (laughs) (laughs) Per household per year in France for the most affected regions, which is a lot of money. Yeah, that's huge. I, I, I've read the, I've read this number as well. I was really surprised uh, because I wouldn't imagine uh, how water can be uh, can cost to taxpayers or even to to France. So yeah, I think that's good that they've decided to to tackle this issue. Yeah, it, when you put a concrete figure on things like that, it's um, yeah, it's quite shocking, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> you you just realize <laughs> when you see the figures. So thanks, Clara, for your um, expertise on this matter. And uh, let's follow, actually, the, all the developments on uh, uh, the implementation of this principle. Of course, on Euractive France and Euractive.com uh, in uh, the environment section and agricultural section. Also, actually, what was quite interesting about this call um, to apply the polluter, polluter pays principle to agriculture is that the uh, the commissioner, the agricultural commissioner, Janusz Wojciechowski, seemed really favourable to this. So I asked him about this this week um, during a press conference, and he said he fully agreed with the conclusions of the report. Um, and he said that the polluter pays principle should be visible in agricultural policy. He took note of the fact that, you know, there are differences between different member states and the effort needs to be proportional, the scale of the problems. But in general, he, he gave this really positive response to this idea of making uh, making this principle apply to agriculture. And obviously, you know, to say that, I think it goes without saying, obviously this means that the farmers themselves or the farming community or the farming sector themselves, depending on what, you know, what area you're in, will be the ones shouldering the burden for this pollution. And this was backed by the commissioner. So I think it's safe to say that's probably going to be a little bit controversial. (laughs) But just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually did reach out to farmers, the Farmers Association, Copacajeca, but they weren't um, willing to comment at the moment. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how this kind of develops in the future and what the response will be to this once it's maybe even considered a little bit more. Because the auditors did point out that it's enormously difficult to apply this principle to agriculture for a number of reasons, because the pollution is really diffuse, because it's hard to... Um, to say who's who's doing what and where and um also because the, the water's not treated um so you know they're not having a direct kind of cost associated with it so there's obviously a lot of issues that need ironing out maybe before you get anywhere near to actually applying this principle in agriculture the fact that he was open to it was um well fully agreed with it actually that's even stronger there are also some legal problems i'm sure our uh listeners uh some of our listeners won't agree but yeah it's a bit difficult to establish a certain degree of responsibility okay when we're talking about big multinational and all this kind of stuff Hmm. uh but you know if you put the burden basically on a small or or mid-sized farmers might be yeah. a bit, it's a very different story really uh yeah, yeah it's a different story and again it's it's even it's not only you know when it comes to who's going to pay but also establish who's responsible mm. for certain actions in when it comes to agriculture of course i mean it's uh maybe easier uh if you have a company that is basically uh polluting uh uh, the air with uh, emissions and so on. Uh, maybe it could be a bit more difficult when it comes to, for instance, water um, sources and, and agriculture. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, the auditors also pointed out that it's 
it's really challenging to apply this to agriculture, also because it's not strictly an environmental policy. And, you know, policy, the, the, the principle only applies to environmental policies. But they pointed out that agriculture creates a lot of pollution, but pays relatively little. And so they said that it's vital to try and, try and address this. And actually, they have called on the commission to, um, they added a kind of specific recommendation to the commission to consider how to deal with this issue and to look at the kind of overall cost benefits of applying the principle um, to the agricultural sector by the end of 2024. So in a couple of few years time. Yeah, let's let's say they might have uh, the agriculture commissioner on board, but maybe some... Uh, some things might change in between. No, at least some suspicion from the commission's legal service. <laughs> well. <laughs> and we are here also with uh, another... Um, very own uh, journalist of uh, your active proper uh, your active party this podcast yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually your active France yeah. I mean, yes we are here with Magdalena you may remember her for her uh, very good uh, uh, agri-food brief last week um, so you already know her name and now you'll know her voice <laughs> yeah yeah now now uh, you'll hear exactly her voice hi magdalena how's it going hi nice thank you very much and thanks for the very flattering introduction yeah. <laughs> of course <laughs> why you're here of course to speak about um bubbles okay so basically what happened between uh france and russia this week but tell us a bit more what happened so actually, we're talking about a real bubble war. Um, so what happened is that Vladimir Putin, so the um, Russian president, um, adopted an amendment to the Russian law on alcoholic beverages, but now um, only allows Russian sparkling wine producers to actually put the name champagne on their bottles, whereas the true champagne producers, which are the French, um, will have to call their true champagne sparkling wine. I assume French people aren't that happy about what's happened. Not at all, obviously. So we have um, strong reactions, notably from the French Champagne Committee, which is obviously outraged at the Russian announcement and which is calling all French champagne producers to stop exporting um, their produce to to Russia. That's an interesting development because, of course, I mean, the economic relationship with between uh, Russia and the EU are not uh, super good since the uh, annexion of uh, Crimea. There's still an embargo and, uh, and actually basically every summer there's this uh, uh, talk of uh, um, lifting this embargo actually promoted by countries like Italy, France and Germany, uh, while Eastern countries are a bit uh, more suspicious. Do you know if there's an agreement of mutual recognition of geographical indication between the EU and uh, Russia? Uh, not from what I gathered. So I asked the commission and they told me that, no, there was no such agreement. Mm -hmm. So um, on the private side, the Champagne Committee is actually working with partners and they said they were working with Russian champagne or sparkling wine producers like for the last 20 years to actually get to a mutual recognition or mm -hmm. at least a sort of respect. But no, there is no such thing as a mutual recognition between the EU and Russia on, on champagne. That's a 
an interesting aspect because, uh, I mean, for instance, in, in March, um, you remember, Natasha, there was this agreement with China uh, on uh, a mutual recognition of, uh, of products, of GIs, basically. And that's why the eAmbrosia database, the database where, where all uh, the uh, GIs uh, are listed, has been recently filled with, uh, with uh, Chinese GIs. It's off topic, but they even managed to get uh, a PGI, a, a protected geographic indication for a kind of pasta, which is quite difficult in the EU. I mean, for instance, there are only... Were well, the Italians outraged in no, this case? No, 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 no. <laughs> because, no, no. There are, if I'm not wrong, there are uh, 13, include, including the, uh, the pasta, the Chinese pasta. The Chinese actually invented pasta. Yeah, you have yeah. To give them that. that's, that's a long, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a long-standing uh, issue. <laughs> but yeah, so for instance... Um, I think five from Italy, like uh, Pizzoccheri, Della Valtellina, Pasta di Gragnano. It's quite tough to uh, get um, a PGI for, for pasta. And, and uh, again, Chinese managed to register these, um, you know, this vermicelli made from bean starch, you know? It's uh, like the... Of course, you've got such a niche knowledge of all the G. <laughs> I have a Chinese uh, wholesale food market next to my house. And, uh, you know, the, the glass noodle, no? So the, because oh, yeah. they completely see through. Uh, I don't remember the Chinese name, though. But, uh, yeah, so Anymore? again, <laughs> this, this mutual recognition is, uh, is actually um, quite helpful in order to establish uh, this environment of trust uh, mm. between uh, two blocks, two economic bloc, uh, and two partners, because I mean, Russia is still, uh, is still, I mean, <laughs> he's a neighbor country. So yeah. it, um, Not a lot of neighborly love <laughs> here. <laughs> Not if you go for something like champagne. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. it's hitting the French right in the core where it hurts, you know. A last question, uh, Magdalena, on this um, champagne uh, Rakus, which is, um, do you know if the commission is planning some kind of action, let's say challenge? So from what they've told me, they're actually trying or yeah, they're going to challenge this definitely. So what they told me is that they're going to check um, within the World Trade Organization whether Russia is actually violating any engagements it took um, mm -hmm towards the European Union. And if that is the case, they said they would take the necessary steps to um, to change that. But uh, I have no idea what these necessary steps might be, obviously. Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, it's true that it's probably in, in breach of some kind of WTO rule. But at the same time, we're talking about a multilateral institution whose dispute settlement mechanism is completely frozen. I mean, it's, and since 2019, basically, the, the, the entire dispute settlement mechanism in WTO uh, is paralyzed. So um, even these, um, you know, measures, you know, in order to challenge on the WTO stage, uh, these um, these uh, Russian decisions might be a bit tricky for the EU, so that's why probably uh, it's better, you know, to uh, treat these bilaterally. Uh, but let, let's see, of course, the what what the development uh, of the this dispute uh, could be. I just have one comment on this whole thing. You said it was a bubble war. I think it needs to be a bubble battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good actually. That's a good. Um, They're going into bubble battle. 
Yeah. Bubble it butter. just sounds so good. Bubble yeah, butter. Yeah, that's pretty, yeah. Yeah. That's my, that's my only contribution to this, <laughs> to this debate. And actually, uh, Magdalena, of course, uh, stay with us to comment on this other news. Um, there's also another battle with bubbles. Another bubble uh, battle. Another bubble battle. Yeah, no, it's it's more, it's not really a bubble battle. When I wrote this article uh, that you can find online on uh, your active. Oh, a little plug there. I used bubble of contention. Mm. Than, yeah. but, you don't need uh, to explain that. No, no, no. We're moving to a different kind of bubbles, the Prosecco bubbles. I mean, which one you you prefer, uh, Magdalena and Natasha? Champagne or Prosecco? I'm more of a Prosecco gal. Of course, because you're English. <laughs> I'm well, sorry. I have to say champagne, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but you're obliged. Your audience will, will be shocked. No pressure, eh? No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm actually fine with both. Yeah, okay. I'm actually not a huge Bubbles fan. So this whole, you know, conversation doesn't impact me deeply. But <laughs> And uh, yeah, coming back to the story, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a big complicated one. Um, every story uh, food related in Italy is a bit complicated because they have this kind of devotion that sometimes becomes uh, propaganda. No? So you need to dis- discern. No, you between- said it, not me. Yeah. No, of course. I mean, I can say that because I'm Italian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, um, for instance, in Italy, the news was reported in a way that seems that Croatia is asking for the protection of the trademark of this. So basically the GIs, which the PDO, the protected denomination of origin for Prosec, which is a sweet dessert wine produced in the southern area of Dalmatia. Okay. That's not true. Because we're talking about the um, protection of traditional terms, which which is a different framework. It's not in the GI's framework. So it doesn't have the same level of protection uh, of uh, PDO, so protected denomination of origin, like, for instance, Chianti, Bordeaux. Uh, the traditional terms are intended to convey some information to consumers, like uh, about a certain description of product characteristics. So... Uh, for instance, for French wine, the Vin de Pays or Grand Cru or uh, Ruby for uh, Porto wines and so on. Now, the issue is that actually Croatia is well aware that they probably couldn't get the PDO status for Prosec because of the evocation problem. So um, there was a, a, a landmark ruling in 2019 where the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, stated that the use of uh, the literary character of Don Quixote de la Mancha um, for the promotion of a certain cheese um, somehow evoked the geographical area of the queso manchego, which is a cheese that got the PDO. So basically, for the mere association between this uh, fictional character uh, this cheese couldn't basically use the character it- itself because it reminds of the queso manchego. So uh, evocation really strong. You know, it, it gives you a taste, a taste again, of of um, how strong is the protection at your level of the geographic mm. indication. And it also, to me, I mean, listening to all of this and just always, I said it before on the podcast, but it makes me kind of marvel at how food is so 
I mean, it's so central to people's like cultural identity. Like it's, it becomes so important to people, you know, like it's uh, obviously to you as an Italian. That makes sense. Not, not only identity, but also uh, when it comes to wallets of people, because I mean, uh, we're talking about a huge, uh, a huge amount of money. We're talking about the added value, the reason why these products basically are paid double mm-hmm. or three times a normal product. No, the point is that Prosec and Prosecco are two different products. Like again, uh, as I said, Prosecco is, is a sparkling wine uh, similar to champagne, but probably a bit better. No, I'm joking. While Prosec is basically a sweet dessert wine, no bubbles. Uh, it, it seems more like Porto wine, you know, like absolutely rien à voir. Yeah, indeed, yeah, rien à voir. Uh, but the name is actually <laughs> quite similar. And the the real problem is that uh, Prosecco in Croatian is Prosecco, but Prosecco in Slovenian is Prosec. And the PDO protect even the translation of the, of a product. So basically, the, the main issue is about the Slovenian, uh, the Slovenian translation of Prosecco. Because again, in Croatia... So it's a language pro- problem, not a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and uh, that's why, for instance, Croatian winemakers, um, they want to... They, they're extending this olive branch to, uh, to Italians, saying, you know, we can, we can reach a compromise, we can uh, add the adjective Dalmatian, uh, to the term prosec, so it's basically you know there's no way to mislead consumers. So in this sense, I mean, Croatians are right in highlighting the different composition of of uh, the different nature of the products. At the same time, Italians are right too when they say that Croatians are trying to bypass the GI's framework because again they are aware that they couldn't get this uh, PDO, so they may they probably try to get at least the traditional term uh, definition. Uh, for instance, the, the, the socialist MEP Paolo De Castro says that uh, it might send a dangerous message that the protection of PDOs in the EU can easily be circumvented through a parallel scheme. In conclusion, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very weird war because it's fought within the EU. At least Croatia is asking instead of just imposing its rule like Putin did. Yeah, 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 indeed. And it, it, it's actually because of the EU framework. I mean, for the EU, um, you know, forced cooperation uh, that it's basically called European Union. Uh, it's true, it's true. And um, at the same time, basically the EU laws are so strict that personally I don't see a way to settle this dispute within the EU or within the, you know, after the commission will basically rule something. Because, I mean, whatever the commission will say, probably Italy or Croatia will go to the court and, and asking for a, a legal definition and so on. So maybe um, the better way to address this dispute is to find an agreement between the two governments involved. Or to export Croatian bubble wine to Russia and sell it as <laughs> That's <laughs> the, the perfect solution. Yes, Magdalena. Oh. So just putting out all the fires here. If you, <laughs> if you if you're uh, doing a negotiation, hire Magdalena, and we'll probably solve all all your problems. 
and uh, you just got yourself a very lucrative side deal there. <laughs> so again, let's see how it how it goes. Of course, if the commission decides to publish this application for ob- objections. Uh, all interest parties have two months from the date of publication of uh, of the application to submit an objection, and then the commission will analyze the objections and so on, and take a, fi- a final decision on the basis of uh, all available information. So it's something that uh, we will cover uh, in the future too. So watch the space. Watch the space, indeed. And there was another uh, important event this week, um, the launch of the Code of Conduct. The Code of Conduct is uh, um, a part of the Farm to Fork strategy, which is the food component, the food system component of the um, European Green Deal, which is the flagship uh, environmental policy of the European Commission. So uh, what's this uh, Code of Conduct? It's basically... Um, a voluntary initiative, which means that basically a company, organization or NGOs who um, are among the signatories of this conduct, at the moment they have uh, 65 signatories, um, they basically uh, commit to um, certain actions which are considered uh, good for uh, sustainability, uh, for, for a more sustainable food system. The most common commitments in this uh, code of conduct are basically uh, sustainable sourcing, uh, the improvement of uh, animal welfare, sugar reduction in products, um, cutting greenhouse gra- gases, of course. Uh, again, it's it's in between um, environmental sustainability, but also, let's say, health sustainability. You know, you know the improving the the, the food products, even in, in uh, with this again holistic approach. Uh, trying to uh, touch on different aspects of the of the food system. So um, again, on board there are food manufacturers, retailers, food safe services, uh, trade associations. To you know, it's it's a broad audience. Why it's interesting? It's interesting because of the particular uh, way of drafting this code of conduct. As I said. It was. Uh, it has been developed with the EU associations and companies. The Commission was acting as a facilitator, no, and not not a, as a honest broker, but <laughs> as a facilitator. Uh, and there was that was such <laughs> a nerdy joke. Oh, I just sorry, I have to just point that out. How terrible no, it was. Okay. No, sorry, that, continue. It wasn't terrible. <laughs> no, it was a very good joke, but it was very niche, nerdy. I like nerdy jokes. Okay, uh, yeah, listeners. Uh, who who <laughs> think that this joke was uh, terrible or nerdy? Uh, please. Um... It can be terrible and it can be terribly nerdy. They're not like mutually exclusive. Anyway, yeah. Um, again, this code has been developed with thanks to the uh, companies, the associations, and of course, the Commission will also support the implementation of the code. They had this uh, stakeholders task force in order to lead the discussion, to adopt the main commitment. So it was an effort, uh, not an innovative, because we had some kind of uh, multi-stakeholder approach to policy May. I was about to say, I was about to say that it sounded familiar. You probably remember that this was the approach adopted for 
the original UTP, you know, uh, coping with the unfaithful practices um, before the commission... Before it didn't work, you mean? <laughs> at the beginning, the companies uh, did some kind of code of conduct uh, on unfaithful practices. Uh, it didn't work. And in the end, the commission came up with uh, a framework, legislative framework, which was adopted um, last uh, in the last mandate. So again, it's not it's not the best the best reference uh, <laughs> or the most promising uh, reference. But um, again, there's no real way of con- way of controlling, you know, the implementation of these commitments. Uh, it's you know mm. the commission say it's a matter of credibility for for companies to be transparent on on this progress. Uh, Presumably, it was the same deal. For yeah, the yeah. Again, some could say it's it's a an exercise of corporate social responsibility, you know, in a certain sense mm-hmm. it is, you know. Uh, but at the same time, what, what Stella Kirakida said at the uh, launch event is that basically it's a, it's a beginning, you know, it's, it's a way to start. Um, it's a way to uh, bring together um, the companies and try to propose and to set uh, this commitment, um, and, and, and of course, I mean, um, presenting in the business environment, the, the concept itself of food sustainability, uh, which, uh, sometimes is a bit overlooked, let's say. I suppose time will tell, and I suppose it will be our job to hold everyone no, to it's, it's also true that, uh, for instance, I haven't seen a lot of reporting on, uh, on this code of conduct. I, I probably read an article from uh, mm. uh, Euronews, which was quite similar to the uh, Commission press release, uh, and then a lot of uh, specialized um, media um, on, on on agriculture and and food. And uh, well, I suppose it will get more interesting as we understand how how companies are actually changing and implementing. You know. Also, but at the same time, I, I haven't read that much on the on on media. But at the same time, I've received, you know, oh, a, yeah. a flow okay. of of uh, yeah hundreds of hundreds. press releases from companies, you no, know, saying uh, we agree, uh, we commit, and so on. But this is what I mean. It only really gets interesting when you actually see the you know the action that comes from it you know right now we've got everyone saying this is great this is great and yeah you know what becomes interesting is when you try and match up actions to words that's true that's true i mean again there's this this feeling that at the moment it's something really corporate uh and even the importance uh, is uh, is understood maybe just you know only by the companies and there's no a lot of uh, involvement of uh, the media sector and uh, and even the public opinion. But again, let's see how it goes. This week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by Euractiv's AgriFood team, Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foot, with the technical support of Evi Chiori. This podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Stitcher and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the latest agricultural news from the EU. I'm Natasha Foote. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week. Mm